everyone before we get to the podcast uh we, we would like to remind everyone that we have a patreon and uh uh we would love to have your support and to uh, see you on our discord where you can meet everyone from uh, uh, us to experts to uh, novices uh, and everyone in between yeah you'll and, get a you'll get a, a peek behind the curtain and yeah a uh, look a look under the lid under the hood the nit- the nitty-gritty of the Zizek and so on podcast we'll let you in to our creative process and and figure out what we really think about a variety of uh, uh, controversial subjects. Uh, we've recently reached the goal of the impossible goal of, re- of 80 patrons. Um, now, compared to, uh, let's say, more real podcasts, real podcasts, real podcasts, uh, that's nothing. Uh, that's dropping the pail. Uh, but it's everything we got, and we're seeing we're 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 trying something out. We want to do a patron drive. We want to reach 100 patrons by the end of August. What do you guys think of that? Maybe. Yeah. Like, we can yeah. try. Yeah. It'll be embarrassing if it doesn't work, but we're going to try. And uh, uh, I would like to stress, uh, for $5 a month, you can get extra episodes. You can, you can go to sleep with the knowledge that you're, you're helping uh, the ZJ and so on podcast produce content. Mm-hmm. And uh, any improvement in that means more more content yeah i mean we're doing more. yeah how about this we're not releasing another episode another <laughs> yeah. fucking episode of g-jack and so on until we get 100 patrons actually okay? i'll do you one better we're not <laughs> releasing michael until we get 100 patrons yeah we have michael we have michael and we're we not releasing him we're not releasing him <laughs> but yeah i mean it's if you think about it five dollars a month that can fall out of your pocket you won't even notice and Really, every everything helps, and uh, we we'd love to keep doing this. We love to keep doing more of it. So so yeah, I mean please, yeah. Please help. Please join us. Please please help. Please. <laughs> please. Yeah, no. Well, if we get more patrons, simply we can just do more episodes. It's that easy. Yeah. Oh, uh, before I forget, another thing we always do bad at. Uh, this is Zizek and so on, and we got mm-hmm. Will and we got Michael. Hello, Michael. Good night, Matt. Michael, both your your beard and your hat are bigger than ever. Oh yeah, I'm growing. <laughs> uh i'm sorry i uh uh to you guys and to our to our listeners i don't have my microphone again this week because it's at the bottom of a pile of my shit in a closet <laughs> what t-shirt you got on there peter uh i got it in vancouver it says i'd rather be rafting <laughs> uh i think it's from like the 80s or something it's got remember those t-shirts like the felt the felt thing on there you know oh yeah oh uh, yeah cool what do you guys think? Is it dumb? Oh, yeah, it's definitely dumb. Is it like bad dumb? No, nah, it, it's fun, I think. Fun dumb. You you look like a prime mover in that t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> a, real, a real creator. How, how are we all doing? Michael, how's the, how's the winter down there? Uh, my roof is leaking in the same spots and new spots. Shit. And the bathtub is filled with like black sludge because like there's some problem wow. with the plumbing where whatever whatever's down there is coming back how does it feel to know that your temple of lies is falling around <laughs> your ears there's like the, the scene the, the house of of self-deception you built yourself <laughs> crumbling around you yeah your unconscious is is bubbling up <laughs> from below uh this is the return of the repressed right <laughs> uh, it's like or it's like in the conversation where he flushes the toilet and then the blood starts to overflow mm-hmm. Actually, i have a mouse this is a new development for me got a mouse huh. what is it is it wreaking havoc or is it just kind of a charming housemate uh i was minding my own business sitting on the toilet <laughs> it darted from behind the toilet uh there's a hole back there and uh i was very surprised and now it's got it's kind of pooping everywhere. It's poop next to my bed. So if it only pretty... if only it pooped uh, in the hole behind the toilet. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be fine. 
I got sent um, Alenka's new book. Oh, oh wow, cool. cool. What's it called? Um, uh, Antigone, the yeah. Parallax of Antigone or something? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Antigone's Parallax. I thought she'd already written on Antigone. Nah, or not not a book anyway. I guess they all need a stab at it. Did you read Zizek's Antigone? Like when he rewrote Antigone? No, I didn't actually. No. Have you? No. No. He did do a, I think he did a production of it too, right? Yeah, yeah. there's a. Where, yeah. where he played Antigone. It was, it was wonderful. <laughs> it, was, it was actually a one man show. He was all, <laughs> Just uh, him in a school. Yeah. I'd watch he it. He was wearing a black turtleneck. Uh, <laughs> it was off Broadway. It was a passion project, a vanity project, really. <laughs> so hot, Will, that you need to wear a hat inside. No, I'm wearing a hat because I got a bad haircut. <laughs> okay, fair enough. How it's bad? My first, it's my first haircut in uh, six years. It's not that bad. I just, I feel um, I've been castrated. There's no other way to put it. I bad cried haircut? like the every time I got my haircut. penis off. <laughs> That's so funny though, because when you go into the when you go to get your haircut, you're you're uh, in the position of trying to explain. Um, well, you're trying to explain what haircut you want, right? That's really, you were explaining to him how you wanted to have your dick cut off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's funny because you're trying to like ins- you're trying to inscribe yourself into the symbolic in in uh like it in a positive sense but of course you can't and the haircut is always disappointing which is correct because your position is always lacking that yeah you're always the insufficiency of language the the inability to properly communicate yeah like you're never gonna be you're (laughs) never gonna have the haircut of your dreams (laughs) Uh, it's such a traumatic thing for me that I just shake my head. I, I just cut it. my, own, I just cut my own hair. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I've been doing. And there was a guy who was like, he works at the barbershop next door, and I was, he was like, basically, I'll give you a free haircut, and I was like, nah, give, it, give it a shot. But you paid with your so entire subject. So that's why I'm wearing that. <laughs> That's why I'm. That's why I'm. Yeah, I, I paid. This is subjected destitution. <laughs> uh, okay, so. Should we, should we get into it? Let's do it. Okay. So uh, this is kind of a this is kind of a fun topic, and I feel like maybe in a bit of an obvious one, but but we're I guess now is the time where we're getting to it. But uh, we're doing Zizek and Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand. How 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 the hell do you I say s- her name? I say Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Really, her name is like something. It's like some Irish ass sounding name. Did you see that? Well, her unless her adopted American name, it's right. like it's like at, at Annie O'Connor or something. Yeah, like, yeah. That's okay. her Rosen Rosenbaum, I think, is her yeah. So name. it's Alyssa Zinovina Rosenbaum, and then in America it was Alice O'Connor, and then her pen name is Ayn Rand. So a nice Irish girl named. And then it switched to Ayn Rand. She's like the philosophy of the book. <laughs> so, yeah. And then um, what we read, uh, it's from uh, the Journal of Ayn Rand Studies, Volume 3, uh, 2002. It's actually a really well regarded essay. This is by yeah. within, within what community? All of them, even the Randians. Uh, okay, I, I came across uh, a fantastic quote. I don't know which reviewer this is from, but this is the quote from the person. It says, few objectivists could read him without trembling and rage. Uh, at a conference about two, two years ago, Zizek told me that he had no use for most American academic journals. There was only one that he really liked, he said. Oh, really? And what was that? It's the Journal of Van Rand Studies, he said. I love it. I read every issue. <laughs> He may have been joking, yet he also appeared serious. The two do sometimes go together. <laughs> he also, there was a, a video I saw this morning where he's listing his five favorite movies. And one of them is The Fountainhead. 
Yeah, it's his uh, one of his desert island films. It's funny because, well, I mean, surely it's because, uh, and we'll get into it. It's about the kind of clarity of how wrong it is, maybe. Uh, Does the yeah, but the I, over I, orthodoxy I, of it. He yeah, likes. but I but I love that way of describing Jack in general. Like he might have been joking, but he also might have been serious because yeah, that's yeah. clearly the way he means a lot of the things that he says. Yeah, like the Trump thing, for instance. Speaking of strange films or TV shows to like, Ayn Rand's favorite TV show, Charlie's Angels. <laughs> really? Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, she was non-monogamous, Ayn Rand. She managed to convince a woman to free her husband for weekly sexual relations. Yeah. And she had writer's block. That's writer's right. Block. Really, she needed some writer's cock. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was gonna say she needed writers unblocking. But you know that guy, blocking, I don't know. that guy that she was rooting, he was the one that went on to popularize the self-esteem movement in psychology. Oh, that's amazing! Really? So, so that must have like a, the kind of object, objectivist undertones, then? Eh? Yeah, it was when they split because he became her oh, really? acolyte because she found out that he was fucking somebody on the side, which she couldn't stomach. Who was not his wife? Yeah, she thought that she was the uh, prized object, but no, there was another right. lady, naughty boy. Okay, so so Ayn Rand, uh, she's you know a towering figure. Her books are, I think, next to the Bible, the most popular books, at least in the United States. Uh, her her philosophy, if you can call it that, has proliferated. <laughs> Um, the highest echelons of the Republican Party. Uh, now, uh, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, the, the Rand Corporation obviously takes their name from, from her. And Rand uh, Paul was named after Ayn Rand? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, of course he was. That's, that's so hilarious. Um, and I, she, I, I would have preferred Ayn Paul. I think that would be a nice name. <laughs> uh so she had this this theory of what she called objectivism because existentialism was taken which is pretty funny oh that's why that's what she called it that yeah that's funny and i'm gonna i'm gonna follow zizek here and and shamelessly uh read from wikipedia just so everyone has a sense of of ayn rand's philosophy wikipedia says Objectivism's main tenets are that reality exists independently of consciousness, that human beings have direct contact with the reality through sense perception, active knowledge from perception through the process of concept formation and inductive logic, that the proper moral purpose of one's life is the pursuit of one's own happiness, that the only social system consistent with this morality is one that displays full respect for individual rights embodied in laissez-faire capitalism and that the role of art in human life is to transform humans metaphysical ideas by selective reproduction of reality into physical form a work of art that one can comprehend and to which one can respond emotionally i like that last part because i think of like some idiot republican trying to trying to look at a work of art <laughs> and yeah. like, oh, metaphysical ideas of selective reproduction of reality into a physical form. Oh yeah, I yeah, can feel it. All the art stuff related with that is is really funny because, like, I think that people on the right are are almost like precluded from artistic ability. Trying to conceive themselves as like great artists and thinkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more to the point, uh, and this is very important for her. For her ideas is that uh is the the law of non-contradiction uh going all the way back to aristotle there and aristotle was uh one of the few uh thinkers that ayn rand thought um she w- she wasn't uh Better superior than. to yeah she she like thomas aquinas and the the uh the uh classical liberals and and aristotle i think was the, and, and jordan peterson i guess <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she summed uh, it up the, as um, the, no, please, we'll go. I was going to say the you know the, the the typical example of the law of non-contradiction, or the, sorry, the law of identity, which which precedes the law of non-contradiction is a a equals a, mm-hmm. and I want to get to that later with a a, a, a 
little reading from um, Emancipation After Hegel. Nice. Because he, he treats that very well, Todd McGowan. Uh, I think past guest uh, Ben Burgess has written about this too. Mm-hmm. Friend of friend of the pod. Yeah. Or, or old acquaintance, I guess. Our, our podcasting colleague. Yeah. Much like Joe Rogan. Yeah, just one more connection to Joe. Yeah, or, or, <laughs> right. Uh, we're we're two. We're one step removed from Joe Rogan at this point. I, I believe we're Jordan getting Peterson closer. Also has a podcast. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay, so should we get to Zizek's essay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so aside from what you might think before you read this essay, like I did, uh, this yeah. is not just a takedown of Ayn Rand's uh, character or her ideas. Yeah, it's, th- it's it a Zizekian was- reading of. Something that you would not normally expect him to read, uh, and in which he finds sort of fertile fertile ground for uh, the theory of subjectivity. Yeah, there's actually very little by way of critique in this essay, mm-hmm. uh, and it's I was fully expecting it to be a, a takedown, but I think maybe only because that's not not because of anything he's said in the past. It's because of how we're like supposed to view. Ayn Rand, right? On the left. Yeah, but like uh, I was I was reading that Wikipedia article. Uh, I'm like trying to put myself in the position of someone who thinks that it's interesting. And I, I yeah. really could. Like, just so, <laughs> I did that a so number of times with this. Yeah, including the movie, which we'll get to. But I I can't imagine how it's how it's especially interesting, but maybe we can try. Maybe it's because we're not we're not prime movers. <laughs> we're um, what, what's what's the word? We're, um there's we're, a number we're of second handers. Second handers. Yeah, or, or, or parasites. Mass we're second hand secondhand news. <laughs> yeah. Uh so but okay, in the so the first paragraph he starts by saying, On Rand's fascination for male figures, displaying absolute unswearable determination of their will, seems to offer the best imaginable confirmation of Sylvia Platt's famous line, Every woman adores a fascist, which is a funny line. Uh, Which is hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Is, however, such a quick, politically correct dismissal of her work really correct? The properly subversive dimension of her ideological procedure is not to be underestimated. Rand fits into the line of, quote, overconformist authors who undermine the ruling ideological edifice by their very excessive identification with it. So you could see, actually, like, even as an Ayn Rand, like, appreciator, enjoyer, uh, there's nothing there necessarily that's like you could interpret that as being pro Ayn Rand. I think actually, you could, but I think it, like it, it's the the way that Zizek usually interprets works is like it doesn't really have much to do with, and this yeah. is kind of a classic critical maneuver, I guess, the authorial intent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the point is, it's it's there in the in the book. It's an imminent the, critique, right? Uh-huh. Uh, this is in a long line of Zizek's work on over-identification, over-orthodoxy, mm-hmm. what was the other one, over-conformity. So starting with Leibach back in the day for Zizek. Do they understand uh, their totalitarian imagery? How does it function? What is its subversive purpose, etc.? Yeah, and it's this point that in in the Rubinovich joke too, it's like the the over articulation of the functioning of the system subverts itself. Yeah, yeah. me uh, me thinks the lady doth protest too much. Uh, the actual quote is the uh, lady yeah doth yeah protest yeah we've too been through this. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the way the way that it's I think we've said this on the podcast, but like the way it's misremembered is actually better. Yeah. But uh, yeah, also in continuation with the thinker that. That you just mentioned, uh, Michael. Zizek uh, does mention Brecht, which is which is interesting as a, as the kind of like uh, as being over orthodox, uh-huh. but but interesting because of that. Uh, he also mentions Kleist uh, and Racine, um, but he says he goes on to say that her over orthodoxy was directed at capitalism itself, obviously, as the title of one of her books, Capitalism: The Unknown Ideal, tells us. According to her, the truly heretical thing today is to embrace the basic premise of capitalism without its communitarian, collectivist, welfare, and sugarcoating. So yeah, I mean, like, in her writing, what, what one is stricken by, what one is struck by, 
precisely that excessiveness. Like, like we can get to the, we'll get to the, the film, but like practically every line is just screaming what it means at you. Uh-huh. The mark of any good work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it just, it just, yeah. Re-explaining yeah. its point over and over and over again. Tell that shot. The, yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> just the, the metaphysical ideas by <laughs> yeah. reproduction of reality exactly. into physical form. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, her writing might really be that kind of A is A kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah. So he's trying to point to how over-orthodoxy undermines the ruling ideological edifice with their excessive mm-hmm. identification, right? So he asks, what is the phantasmatic kernel of capitalist ideology? For us as viewers, is that what he means? Yeah. But clearly beyond the intent of the writer themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that mode of the over-orthodoxy, what's um, revealed is that phantasmatic kernel, which we know to be enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All these systems rely on a hidden obverse that sustains the enjoyment. Mm-hmm. The hidden obverse being, well, according to her, the communitarian collectivist welfare sugarcoating. Mm-hmm. Right. The capitulations the capitalism right. makes to to mass men. Right. But oh. but from Zizek's perception would be uh exploitation and ideological control, etc. It's also like that uh why are you telling me why are you telling me what is it? Why are you telling me what you mean when that's really what you mean? But basically the idea that the that the kind of like at face meaning of the thing is obscured by the fact that it that it actually like in in its appearance it actually contains the disavowed kernel that it's like like what through, is being through speaking yeah yeah like through speaking the the um yeah through well like I, I guess in these terms like through its over explication over identification over orthodoxy it covers the fact that it that it actually really does contain the the um the thing that's being described like for instance yeah. like in for Ayn Rand right like she's saying how like the ideal mode is is selfishness right and individualism and uh lack of compassion for others and that is like she means it as a good thing right but mm-hmm. like to us you know to someone from our perspective for instance it's literally saying that this about parts of capitalism yeah as, yeah, as yeah. if they're like in uh, today's, in today's yeah in today's parlance it's uh saying the, the quiet part loud right mm-hmm. right right and mm-hmm. I, I i guess it's a, again an example of the if it looks like a duck walks like a duck acts like a duck don't be confused it's a duck <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a duck <laughs> oh it's the joke why are you mm-hmm. telling me yeah i forget it's one of those the jokes that g tells but it's it's lost on me right now we'll the, later. whoever's listening to this who who knows and i'm sure there are people who do will we'll be yelling at the yeah yeah at the audio file <laughs> and and who and what is a podcast listener but an audio file what a, what hey, is a what podcast is list, li- <laughs> listener but but someone who wants to be part of our conversation but can't be you bring up the quote the quote here um hello mr rock i hope to meet you someday like this alone you shouldn't mind talking to me what about there's a building that should have been yours. There are buildings going up all over the city which your great chance has refused to you and given to incompetent fools. You're walking the streets while they're doing the work which you love but cannot obtain. This city is closed to you. It is I who've done it. Don't you want to know my motive? No. I'm fighting you and I shall fight you in every way I can. You're free to do what you please. Mr. Rourke, we're alone here. Why don't you tell me what you think of me in any words you wish? But I don't think of you. Pretty good line. I got it. You got to give it. Give it to him. Give it to oh, him. Did you guys? Did you guys both finish the film? I nearly finished it. I almost finished the five-minute clip I watched. <laughs> uh, okay, so Gigi continues about the kind of dichotomy in her work. The kind of um, the ideological axis um, on which she bases her work between the the notion of prime movers or men of the mind and second handlers or mass men. Mm -hmm. 
there's the there's the uh, the man of will and strength who follows his own creative pursuits, and there's the rest there's the rest of the losers out there who just follow what they they think they should. Right. Yeah. The difference is that the prime movers seek no recognition; they're reconciled within themselves, and then the second hangers search for recognition outside themselves which Shijek's going on to develop as the difference between drive and desire. Yeah, which is really kind of like the main theoretical point in this essay, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he calls that, you know, the kind of dichotomy there, the, as we said, the phantasmatic kernel of American capitalist ideology. I mean, like, it's very easy to see how that kind of is probably on some level what pretty much everyone in a position of power thinks on some basic level. Mm-hmm. And even what it teaches you for in terms of how to relate with your yourself in your own life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, but like the, the notion of the capacities of the individual to um, act for themselves to, towards their own aims and in doing so sort of like uh, accomplishing the highest possible activities of, of the capitalist order and yeah. of, the, of the kind of moral landscape of, mm-hmm. of uh, contemporary capitalism. It's kind of like bad Nietzsche, you know? It, it is, but but it also it's funny. Also, I was watching that that clip, and he he uses a phrase that's very funny. He says, um, "Living by one, living by his own truth, and uh, doing his work," which struck me as very much of the like, current <laughs> yeah. in terms of like, <laughs> I'm just trying to trying to live my own truth and be myself. And, yeah, and he's also work. like he's all like yeah, he's like they they stole my building plans without my consent. <laughs> <laughs> He does use that word. It was, it's very funny. And it's another, this is another one, a big term for Ayn Rand is, is identity. Um, so you're, you're saying that maybe on some level this, this type of self-perception also permeates the kind of liberal left. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think we have discussed how that kind of notion of uh, the self that permeates identity politics is a very kind of like self-enclosed version of the self that doesn't, that is... Yeah, I think in some ways comparable to it, what's being described by Ayn Rand. Yeah, and it's it's one that that crucially ignores negativity and contradiction. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it's kind of a positive identity, mm-hmm. and desperately seeks recognition from the social order. Right, and it's funny because the when the this class of of prime movers goes on strike in the Fountainhead. Uh, that's an that's an atlas shrugged sorry it's an atlas shrugged yeah the explicit aim is to is to show that they really run society through their own selfish activities right yeah but it's funny because in doing so they're seeking recognition for it yeah yeah the contradiction the um the randian reversal is um individualists of the world you know it that's that's yeah that's pretty good too you gotta you gotta hand it to you on that one <laughs> That's funny. That's uh, okay, so Zizek starts to kind of discuss uh, Ayn Rand's book and film, The Fountainhead. Which wait, 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 very quickly, something just popped in my head before we move on to that. Like, isn't it obvious to read this in in like the master slave dialectic too? Like, mm-hmm. the the prime mover clearly needs the recognition of the mass men to be well, a, to be a prime mover to have their self conception, right? Yeah, I mean, why give a speech? Yeah, to a court. Your, yeah, why try and convince his prosecutor? Why say anything? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, because it goes mean... it goes directly against his. I don't think of you. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, what we're referring to, uh, dear listeners, if you haven't uh, read the Fountainhead for some reason, uh, is there's a trial at the end of the film, but maybe we can just kind of quickly go through the plot. Uh, so. Fountainhead follows the character Howard Rourke, uh, young, quote-unquote, uh, architect, but it's very funny. I looked this up in the movie. Play, uh, <laughs> Howard Rourke is played by by young Gary Cooper, who is 48 years old. <laughs> it was, go- was going to be uh, Bogart. Uh, Howard Bogart? <laughs> <laughs> is this just me, or is Gary Cooper just, like, a bad actor? I liked him. I thought he had a certain well, sensitivity to him in this film. Okay. Uh, I can see that the metaphysical meaning did not. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny, like, like the first scene, he's like, uh, he's, it shows him being interviewed 
by architectural firms that are declining him or like he's in school, but you can clearly see that it's the profile of like a middle-aged man. And it just, it just really doesn't fit. It's the whole, like, you know, what was the most attractive thing in the, in the, or I guess forties, fifties was like the virile middle-aged man. Yeah. And now it's gone to Timothy Chalamet. Look how far, far we fall on. That, that's one of the things that, you know, like no longer occurs in modern films is when the girlfriend comes and sits on the man's knee. Because mm-hmm. it's it's creepy and weird. <laughs> but I I don't know. Okay, Michael, it was it's a weird movie, right? Like what was yeah, your big time. What, what are your yeah? It's just so off. It just feels the characters are wrong. The dialogue is stilted and yeah. Like, so she wrote the screenplay and had full control over the film. Yeah. Uh. So you know, scenes like, um, Rourke saying that 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 there can be no adjustments to his building, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. is Rand Very speaking much. through the character. Uh-huh. And yeah, like, as I think I said earlier, like pretty much like top to bottom, all of the dialogue is just repeatedly saying like, I'm, I'm firm in what I believe and my self-assurance comes from myself and is for myself. And what's wrong with the world is that people are followers. And it just says it over and over and over again. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Again, the mark of any great work of art. <laughs> I think a really interesting but, line of thought, which I didn't develop, would be the form of neo-noir and objectivism. Oh, that's cool, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, I will say the movie looked pretty cool. It's beautiful. Yeah, and and I got to hand it to Howard Rourke. Pretty good at designing buildings. Look- <laughs> a, bit of bad, a bit of Bauhaus in there, yeah. Yeah, this is a real mo- they're like real modernist works. I uh, I thought they were pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, the movie movie is weird. I, I came across uh, some of the reviews, the contemporary reviews uh, written about it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll read them in the in the in the affectation of the of what was no doubt the the vocal what the voice of the writer sounded like. <laughs> So we'll start some like 50s like newspaper music or whatever. Uh, its characters are downright weird and there's no feeling of self-identification. <laughs> uh, that was the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, communist newspaper, The Daily Worker, uh, called the Fountainhead an openly fascist movie. No? No, nah, I'm like that's good. That's a good. huge fan. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, I can continue. Vari- variety, meanwhile, called the film cold, unemotional, loquacious, and completely devoted to hammering home the theme that man's personal integrity stands above the law. They're right on that one. Is completely devoted to it. <laughs> uh, he searches hear- for it. All his thoughts are bent on it. <laughs> yeah. You guys want to hear what the New Yorker uh, thought of the film? Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is good. Okay. Uh, uh, the most asinine and inept movie that has come out of Hollywood in years. <laughs> <laughs> A vast succession of turgid scenes. Yes. <laughs> I had a funny moment, uh, very briefly. He's talking about Atlas Shrugged. And he, when, they, when they go on strike, they... they they escaped to the Colorado mountains, accessible only via a dangerous narrow passage in a kind of negative version of Shangri-La, a utopia of greed, a small town in which unbridled market relations reign. And I, I thought to myself, it sounds like Boulder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, okay. Howard, Howard, uh, or whatever the fuck his name was. Uh, Howard Rourke. Uh, he's uncompromising in his, in his architectural vision and as a result is getting no work. Howard Rourke, possessed of a great talent, but unwilling to compromise his ideals at any price. Dominique Francon, the kind of woman who could enslave any man except one. Gail Wynand, molder of destinies. He could rule any man except one. There is no honest way to deal with people. We have no choice except to submit or to rule them. I chose to rule. Ellsworth Tui. Calculating ruthless, he feared no man except one. The man who refuses to submit and to serve. Howard Rock is the man who must be destroyed. Peter Keating, selfish, weak. You want me to confess the truth to them, to, to everybody? No. What are you going to do? 
You have to leave that up to me now. What happens then, Michael? He um Oh true. Uh I don't have the memory for it, but I can try. Well, it's clear that I'm laboring under this as well. Uh guys, we don't need a synopsis. We don't, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> it's painful. It's painful for Will. <laughs> painful. But, <laughs> yeah. He's like, I was He's never like gonna watch the movie vaguely, and now I have to watch you morons. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened? Uh, <laughs> uh, she whips him in the face with a riding crop, and it's pretty horny. It was quite an erotic scene, actually. I had to give it to them. Because she grew up reading imperial fiction and identified with all of the psycho captains of ships and whatnot beating the fuck out of people. Heavy. Yeah. The, really yeah. picture Hugo, right? Well, the, the Fountainhead was known as a bit of a, a one-handed book for college girls in their dormitories across America going to bed each night okay. with Rourke. Interesting. Some pretty horny Silly stuff. Path style. Mm-hmm. So obviously something that Ayn Rand can't develop is where does anybody get their money from? So Dominique is the daughter of somebody who's clearly rich because they own a quarry. You don't know mm-hmm. how Rourke, this, you know, apparently self-made man, but that kind of like what Will was um, pointing to before the, what is it, the Shangri-La of greed, so what is this foundational myth? Where does value get produced for Ayn Rand? The newspaper man, you know, it was, it's also a rags to riches story. And, and he's supposed to be like close to Rourke in terms of being like a creator, but cared too much about what the masses thought. That's still the, that's still the myth about these alleged self-made capitalists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elon Musk, for instance. Elon Musk, who inherited yeah. money from his father's emerald mine and, uh, Bill Gates, who, you know, his, his mother gave him a starting starting sum of like $5 million or whatever to start Microsoft. Which is also, you know, another one of these myths that's, that's always obscured is like, okay, the creative and technological production of any of these companies is down to someone who, down to the people that she would term mass men, right? Yeah. And that capitalism what she's lauding as the greatest characteristics of capitalism are the capital capitalism really like crushes people and that yeah, like the capitalism capitalism needs a class of workers to function it, not everyone in a capitalist society can be a prime mover it's literally impossible and that the the artistic the great artistic works of capitalism are in some sense kind of like in spite of it the interpretation that that capitalism facilitates great works of art is belied by the the uh, well, for instance, the crushing state of the arts currently. In that, it's it's impossible to create anything if you're not already wealthy, right. uh, and and wealthy people don't make good art. So, <laughs> um, in a in a in a note, in one of Zizek's notes for the article, he writes, uh, "Rand's ideological limitation here is clearly perceptible. In spite of the new impetus, the myth of the prime movers got from the digital industry." Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, you know, probably view themselves in some way as the prime movers. Individual capitalists are today in our era of multinationals, definitely not its prime movers. In other words, what Rand represses as the fact of the rule of the crowd is the inherent outcome of the dynamic of capitalism itself. Yeah, right. Okay, should we get to the desire and drive crap? Yep. Okay, so what is all this to say? What is he getting from from Ayn Rand's work, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged? Um, His first kind of theoretical point here is to say that Rourke is the protagonist of the fountainhead as the being of pure drive in no need of symbolic recognition and as such is uncannily close to the Lacanian saint only an invisible line of separation distinguishes them and the three ways to compromise one's drive expressed through the other major characters in the book Um, and what he's getting at here is the underlying opposition between desire and drive so he brings in Lacan okay okay what, what are you getting at here man yeah, that what's kind of restrained in the other characters is the various ways in which they're not able to account for their desire. Uh, mm. And that Rourke himself is a, is a character of pure drive. Yeah. Dominique recognises that she's the object of desire and is also a desirous subject. She has to sabotage herself in order mm. to be worthy of his love. 
and also when she's when she's kind of entreating him to to marry her, she's demanding that he give up, you know, the most fundamental core of himself to, right. to give up his architecture. She wants him to lose his desire so that she can kind of fully possess him. Yeah, and in doing so, he is no longer the object of her desire. But Zizek stresses that one never relates directly with the object of their desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a very nice point here vis-a-vis uh, the notion of, of property, which yeah. is very important for Ayn Rand. He says, when I cast a desiring glance at the object, I am always already gazed at by the other, not only the imaginary other, the competitive envious double, but primarily the big other of the symbolic institution that guarantees property. Yeah. So like the, this is, I think there's something interesting there. Like there obviously is the, the interplay between the, the uh, subject and the other as regards desire, but in terms of the logic of the book, the notion of property has to be always already threaded through the symbolic institution that guarantees it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it actually needs, it needs an external big other. It cannot yeah. occupy that role itself. And it needs, in some sense, that symbolic uh, chain to be institutionalized in the form of maybe something like a government with laws. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah there's that- new terrain to be, to be captured by the prime mover. Before it's captured, it already has to belong to some external authority. And so he stresses that that there's like there's a castrative matrix mm-hmm. in this in this he calls it a dialectics of possession. If I am truly to possess an object, I, I have to first lose it, i.e., to concede that its primordial owner is the big other. Right. So this fantasy of directly occupying the role, let's say, of of the big other or the master signifier or something, uh, is sort of like constitutively castrated by the thing that that needs to guarantee that that ownership. Yeah. So um, like the, the paradox of property is that it's in a sense anticipated, right? Like it's always already gazed at by the other. Yeah. And he's, he, he draws up the, the example of, of the king who in principle owns the entire land so that whatever the individual land op- owners possesses was given to them by the king. Again, mm-hmm. that's like that castrative dialectic of property ownership. Because ultimately, the property owner would always know that it originally belonged to the king. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also, you know, what is flawed in this conception of, of the individual as somehow existing enclosed within themselves, right? And this is where, you know, Hegel would enter the conversation, right? Because like Hegel's very notion of the subject is that it exists in relation. And same with Lacan, right? The symbolic order, like the symbolic order is required for your very perception as a, you know, as a subject. Mm-hmm. Entrance into language, there's always this, this order that, that must exist beyond the subject in order for the subject to function. And to view as Ayn Rand does and that the people who follow her do as objectivists or whatever, that you can somehow kind of stand primordially and separately from that. Right. Uh, it just kind of fails to understand the way that the subject is formed. Yeah, there is no there is no matter language, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and there, desire is there, always the desire of the other. Mm-hmm. And to and yeah, and I guess that's why she calls it prime mover because in in Aristotelian philosophy, right, like God is the prime mover, that from which all movement begins, and yet itself is unmoved. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> I don't see how you could view yourself as existing in this in the world, you know, in relation to its objects and its norms and its culture and think that somehow came from you. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I had a friend in a friend from primary school all the way through to my early twenties who had a, over school. <laughs> from primary school. He would always lament like having to pay taxes for other people's children to go to school or like right. to use certain roads. He's like, all roads should be toll roads. Yeah, yeah. And it was only when, when reading this essay that I realized that his like email address was an Iron Rand character. So he'd obviously oh, really? fucking read the Fountainhead or that's funny. Atlas yeah, well, like when I my first email address was the author of Calvin and Hobbes. So first, <laughs> I'm merely a you know I do not have a the personal kind of metal and and uh, character to be a prime mover. Just just we, a, just a we're little all thinking it. Who? <laughs> <laughs> this uh, little kid who invents a who invents an imaginary friend. In my case, it's Michael. Yay! So <laughs> the the internet friend who I've never met. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, but but um, so far 
outside of uh, a critique here, what Zizek likes about Ayn Rand or this notion of a prime mover is a prime mover is ready to pay any price up to the utter humiliation of feeding the very force that works against him. Um, what the hystericized prime mover must accept is thus the fundamental existential indifference. She must no longer be willing to remain the hostage of the second-hander's blackmail, and she must be ready to give up the very kernel of her being, that which means everything to her, and to accept the end of the world. Yeah, this is what Lacan calls subjective destitution. Zizek wants to stress here the shift from desire to drive. drive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can also see how it would be a quite a good description of the revolutionary subject, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the shift from desire to drive is the shift from the desire of the object itself as, as the mm -hmm. goal to following the aim of the drive as it circles its object. And its, its failure is generative of enjoyment in its repetition. So if Dominique continues to operate in the mode of desire, like as a desired object, then when it's obtained, that sublime object of JR is lost and the spell is broken. And that's that's what desire, the desire of the object always fails in attaining its goal. It will mm -hmm. always be desirous of another object. Yeah, the right. target that's never arrived at. Mm -hmm. The kind of like, it's like the Zeno's paradox of desire that it can't actually reach its goal. Yeah, he never gets out of bed. Well, there's he has like 50 of them. It's like if you yeah. fire an arrow at a target, yeah. uh, the the distance between the arrow and the target will always mm. be, if you consider it in terms of it's being halved, yeah. as far as you go and you have that distance, the arrow can never reach. It, yeah. It's an infinite regression of halves. Well, they call it an um, asymptotic approach. Okay. So A does not equal A, you're saying? Yeah. I, well, let's get there because I, I think I, it's fun with Todd. Um, well, I did a, a wordplay. Oh, okay. I, I missed it. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because A equal A would be the arrow hitting its target. And if it's an asymptotic approach, A does not equal A. <laughs> oh, why didn't I get that? The, the, uh, the innermost feature of the prime mover is it, their lack of, of the false guilty feeling for pursuing their own, their own aims. Um, Zizek says there's a, there's a freedom here from the, from the superego, the vicious superego cycle, uh, the, the cycle of perpetual guilt. Um, the prime mover, um, in Lacan's terms, I think, does not give way relative to their desire, right? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And maybe here we could say the probably the most famous line from the movie, which I think we might have already referenced, but his rival is, is essentially telling him, you know, really what do you tell me what you really think of me now that we're alone? And, and Howard Rourke says, uh, but I don't think of you at all. The act, that act of assuming existential indifference, Zizek says, is perhaps the very gesture of absolute negativity that gives birth to the subject. So he's going all the way, he's going all the way to, the, to that point of saying that this gesture on the part of the prime mover sort of enacts this subjective destitution. And Zizek says, paradoxically, another name for the subject itself, for the void beyond the theater of hysterical subjectivations. Yeah, and he goes he goes quite far here in terms of how like usually when he you know talks about traversing the fantasy, like that's like that act itself is like the uh purpose of of the writing, right? But he does discuss like what's at the end of traversing the fantasy here. Yeah, he says it's not a kind of subjectless loop of the repetitive movement of drive, but on the contrary, the subject at its purest. Uh, and one is almost tempted to say the subject as such, saying yes to the drive, i.e. precisely to that which can never be subjectivized, fully assuming the inevitable, uh, i.e. the drive's radical closure, is the highest gesture of subjectivity. This yeah. is interesting because this, like, 2002, Zizek is still in the more, I think you can say, like more Lacan-dominated phase of his thinking. Mm -hmm. um, he would describe it, I think, in very different terms now. Yeah, I'm not sure that he would focus on the on the end, like on go, going through that that uh, that fantasy. Mm -hmm. There, basically, he's he's trying to get at the idea that that there has to be a kind of indifference towards the other's desire, which is always kind of mediated through 
this hysterical game of of subjectivizing your one uh, one subjectivity to various signifiers or whatever, mm. uh, and suspending that that game of he says mutual misrecognition, mm. um, and th- and there the the pure subject emerges. Right, because I guess what's left at like through considering what it means to be like kind of endlessly directing oneself towards various aims is that beyond what like rather than as that subject might think uh that who they are is constituted by by those aims really what is what is discovered through that motion itself is the kind of like absence that zero level of the subject like it's not mm-hmm. the contents it's the form itself right it i, I do have trouble <laughs> like it's great that Zizek can find this in something like Ayn Rand, but then you, yeah. you realize really what he's talking. <laughs> it's like, okay, the prime mover bullshit. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, really what he's, what he's doing is showing that they're like in this can be, you can discern in this dynamic of, of desire in her, in her work. There's like the Lacanian point not to be missed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, this is so, this is four yeah. years before he starts his work on Bartleby politics, and I think that there's something with Rourke that there's something of the the third choice, the third that's pill. A very, yeah, that's a very good point there. Yeah, Rourke is kind of in each situation in which he's presented with an option Sorry. that would that would kind of realize uh, in you know some version of his desire. He basically says, I would prefer not to. <laughs> yeah, because he's presented with a forced choice, right? And then he blows up his building. Mm-hmm. That's the third choice. For Zizek, that's the difference between a moral act and an ethical act. So Rourke functions for Zizek as an ethical protagonist. But I want to see, see Rourke the day after he's blown up his building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, what happens the day after... What happens? Uh, you didn't watch the movie, yeah? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like a like a true Zizekian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you pure Zizekian move. <laughs> Just read their Wikipedia article instead. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, what pairs well with that scene, which the scene, like, okay, maybe what my main takeaway with Gary Cooper being not a, a great actor is that he does fairly well with the rest of the film, but there's something very weird about the delivery in that scene. Like you can like see the cogs working in his head of like remembering a bunch of lines. It's just, he says one line and then he says another line and he's like, okay. And it's sort of a bit of emotion here. But the men of unborrowed vision went ahead. They fought, they suffered and they paid, but they won. No creator was prompted by a desire to please his brothers his brothers hated the gift he offered and it just it's just very weird um apparently it's like it was like a terrifying amount of dialogue okay for him for him as an actor yeah well like just for, to, for the yeah. production of the film itself he's it not like, he's not reciting fucking shakespeare here yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's something so preposterous about that figure that supposedly embodies the truth and it's it's that Peterson esque figure. Uh huh. Yeah. The subject's supposed to know. Yeah. Or the yeah, non duped nice. era, maybe. Or the non duped. It's the non duped. I don't know. Mm-hmm. One of those. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, what, what goes very hilariously with that is uh, we watched a bit of the trial scene from Atlas Shrugged. And it's just so fun. It's like, like the, the actor's delivery is also fucking hilarious, but for different reasons. It's like the, both, uh, both versions are what what a Randian in each historical period would think of as like the, the like height of manliness. And it's the, very the other guy has a very, very yeah. rugged voice. Yeah. He doesn't compromise. <laughs> it's so <laughs> I got Steven Seagal to do that role. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I wanted to engage a bit of, a bit of Todd McGowan's work here uh, on the law of non-contradiction. Cause like, I just wanted to, refute a little bit through through todd the the stupid notion that there is that there is a law of non-contradiction so todd quotes zizek and he says the whole point of hegel's philosophy is that one accepts contradiction as an internal condition of every identity the law of non-contradiction in its articulation 
refutes itself by redoubling the term A equals A. And it shows that it is not purely self-identical. The equal sign here is a sign of difference of unacknowledged otherness, which emerges through the very articulation of the law. And he says that the, the principle of non-contradiction actually refutes itself when it is followed through a series of philosophical positions. A position is that is fundamentally at odds with itself. So, I mean, that's just like very basic Hegelian matrix. The if you if you think about a thing, a being, or being itself, in in Hegel's terms, being is 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 contrasted or or is fundamentally in a, a, a movement, a perpetual movement of becoming through its dialectic with nothing. Yeah, Todd says that. It implies both a political decision to assert a claim about the world and a psychic investment in the claim about identity. So the statement of identity distorts the world that it constitutes. Yeah. He says that identity is incapable of being identity or identical with itself without introducing some form of otherness that reveals the lack of perfect self-identity. Right. So if you think A equals A, the the presence of the equal sign lies that a is identical itself because all you would yeah exactly really is just the letter a if yeah. it was if a was identical with itself yeah and it shows it you could do like a little like lacanian trick with the with the symbol i feel like oh uh, yeah yeah like you the know, equal like with the a, line a, through a, a or something <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. um yeah so that was just a, a a very basic philosophical uh annoyance with objectivism obviously not worthy of the name of a philosophical system it's a very highfalutin name for itself yeah um yeah so i guess zizek's main you know the thrust of the argument here is that there's and this is this is true of the kind of zizekian approach to culture uh in general is that there's it's not either a confirmation or negation of the kind of quality or of the worth of the book Mm -hmm. uh but that what's interesting in it is basically what he what he finds in there as a kind of demonstration of the Lacanian or Hegelian Marxian system. Mm-hmm. I just find that image of it being like the only American journal that he avidly reads is hilarious. Yeah, it's hysterical. Yeah. Like Saint Jacobin? Because <laughs> <laughs> it runs along, because he says things like um, that he really enjoys intelligent conservatives, right? Like Chesterton's mm-hmm. one of his favorites. Slaughterdeck. Right. Okay. That was good. Yeah, I think, I think that was an, I think that I think was, that was a, yeah, She was a benzodrine was addict as well. Oh, fuck. I wanted to say this, and I can't believe I didn't mention it. She, this bitch lived on social welfare, okay? Yeah, she died alone on social welfare. Yeah, with lung cancer. And then her husband oh, died of alcohol. Sound like she wasn't doing the work or living her truth. Yeah, uh, I, I just wanted to go through the comment section of... Uh, the courtroom speech because it's just very funny. This is one. This is one of the most powerful and truthful speeches in Hollywood history, in my honest opinion. There, I believe it's like when I believe I'm in down, the right. Of, watch this. Yeah, I believe in the right of everyone to live their life, believe as they wish, do as they wish, up to the moment it interferes with anyone else's right to do the same. Uh, it's okay, funny then what? Then what nothing, happens? There's nothing so conformist as this comment section of all these free thinkers all uh-huh. saying the exact exact fucking same thing with like not a hint of irony in it it's so funny do you want to stop the recording now uh yeah sure okay fellas uh see you soon yep bye 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 Yeah.